Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're talking about IRAs. Can IRAs be a tax time bomb? We're specifically going to cover how, how this happened and why we think that is, and why we think the death of the stretch RMD was one of the biggest changes to retirees over the last 20 years. We're going to talk about what it means for the average oil and gas retiree, and then we'll walk through a case study that really unpacks the numbers just to show how catastrophic mismanaging this can be. And then we'll end with strategies you can take to remedy the situation. So Justin, I think it's a good idea to just set some context, right? Before we really get into it, how how did this happen? And, and when did this happen? And has this always been the case? I think the real uh, crux of this was 2018, 2019. So Congress passed a uh, law that affected retirement and estate planning and some different tax details. But the biggest one most relevant to IRAs is that when you pass down an IRA to the next generation, you are now severely limited. Your family is severely limited in how long they can take distributions. And so, Jared, one thing we talk about is lifetime tax rate. So that's what we're hitting at. It's it's how do we lower someone's lifetime tax rate and even beyond their lifetime? And with an IRA, you have to ask that question. Everything in a pre-tax IRA is is facing some tax rate, right? And so that 2018-2019 shift where now inherited IRAs are going to likely be taxed at a much higher rate, that's a big issue. And that's got to be planned around. Yeah. So to to be crystal clear, like what we're talking about, we're saying IRAs being a tax time bomb. We're talking about pre-tax IRAs. A beneficiary inheriting a Roth IRA is still subject to RMDs, but because Roth or after-tax accounts, those are generally non-taxable events. So we're talking about pre-tax IRAs here, and we're talking about non-designated beneficiaries. So historically, someone could any inheritor of an IRA could stretch the distributions or take the distributions over their life expectancy. So if you inherited a million dollar IRA and you're a 40 year old and you inherit it from your parents uh, and you lived in 95, you have 50 plus years to withdraw that account. But now with the elimination of the stretch IRA for certain beneficiaries, you have to take the whole account in 10 years. So what you had to, what you had to, you had 50 years previously, you now only have 10. And so that's a big change, but this isn't everybody. So spouses can still take stre- the stretch IRA uh, over their life expectancy. Um, minor children, uh, the beneficiaries no more than 10 years younger than the person who uh, they're inheriting the account from. Those type of people are, are designated beneficiaries, which means they can still take it over their lifetime. But for everyone else, and primarily I want you to think of kids and kids inheriting an IRA. They have to take the full account over 10 years after the IRA beneficiary dies. And Jared, can I give a really fast history lesson on why this has come to a critical point at this time? Love it. Okay. So, you know, let's start out. Jared, when was the 401k? When was that legislation passed for the 401k to be an allowable savings vehicle? 
Justin, I don't know, but I know it's less than 50 years old. Awesome. Yes. Late 70s. So 78 or 79 was when that law was passed. But crazy enough, and this is truly wild when you think about, you know, 401ks today having trillions of dollars being the primary vehicle of wealth for basically anyone who doesn't own their own business. Um, So 401ks were allowed. The law was passed in the late 70s. It took two or three years before it was ever even implemented. So it's this new tax law. No one's ever done this before. And finally, someone looked at this and said, wait, I think this means that I can take money from my paycheck, put it in a retirement account, and I can get a tax deduction for doing that. And then it actually went to court when someone tried to do that. And the court said, "Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. That's what that law says. So that moment in 1981 or 1982 was how uh, it finally, two or three years after the law was passed, finally hit the mainstream that said, oh, wow, this, you can do this. You can put money in a retirement account and that will lower your tax bill and it will grow tax deferred. And so then you fast forward another 10 years and we finally have mass adoption of 401ks. And so now we're in the early 90s and most big companies are now offering 401k plans. So why is this relevant to IRAs? Because it's pre-tax savings. Um, You're starting to see pre-tax savings become a big part of personal balance sheets. Fast forward another 10 years, and this will be the end of the history lesson. Um, Another 10 years, you've got a huge amount of people in corporate America. Their main benefit was still a pension. Right. And, and back then, pensions were less about, you know, a, a retirement account that you take a lump sum and roll them to an IRA. And they were more about taking the annuity. And so the change and why this has become such a big deal is, well, 40 years ago, 401ks became allowed. 30 years ago, they became mainstream. 20 years ago, pensions started to shift to where now pensions were were more of a lump sum vehicle that goes into the IRA. The reason I mention all of this is, Jared, in, in 2002, people didn't have three, four, five million dollar IRAs. They just didn't. The vehicles to even build that account up were, were not even teenagers at that point almost. And so... Only now, only, you know, in the post-2015 world have 401ks been around long enough, 30, 40 years, to see mega compound interest. Only in the last 10-ish years have pensions moved to where, okay, pensions are now a seven-figure asset that get, that goes to the IRA. So those forces mean that not only do we have to talk about the stretch IRA and the tax benefit, but it means that, hey, there's a serious group of people that actually have big assets, three, four, five million dollars in IRAs. That's exactly right. Like essentially it was mathematically impossible to have the balances we're talking about today, right? Contribution limits were lower and they're just, they hadn't existed long enough, but now, now they are, right? And Congress essentially is looking for ways to raise tax revenue. And they see, hey, people are sitting on this big $3 million nest egg. If I can, you know, Congress thinks about effective lifetime tax rates too, probably, right? And if they see, hey, I have $3 million and if I can get them to take it out over, if I can force them to take it out over 10 years, my effective tax rate on that dollar is probably gonna be exponentially higher than if if someone has 40 plus years to take that IRA distribution over. So 
I mean, it, it can make a material difference, right? Like, but 10 years, Justin, 10 years kind of sounds like a lot. Like that's a whole decade, right? And, and I guess one thing we'll call out here is there's no actually the, the elimination of the stretch. You don't actually have to take an RMD every single year. I'd argue you should because you're creating an even bigger, an exponential tax time bomb. But hypothetically, you could wait till year nine and take the entire balance of the IRA. Of course, that's a tax nightmare, but hypothetically, you could do that. Um, but 10 years, Justin, still kind of feels like a lot, right? But is it, I'd be curious, like, you know, the scenario you're talking about, why is that uh, like very prescient to our oil and gas retirees, right? Because like you and I see, you and I think about this and we go, man, our, a lot of our clients are hyper exposed to this. Do, why do you think that like this is applicable, especially to oil and gas retirees before we launch into the case study? Well, it goes right back to the 401k, and that's why we cover that. Uh, oil and gas companies, on average, in my word, especially the super majors, uh, they are putting five to 10 times more into their employees' retirement via matching, profit sharing, or, or pension as well. So the company portion of what they put in pre-tax retirement plans is so much higher than the average American. Uh, Jared, the average 401k match right now is like three percent a huge amount of 401ks have a match that is below five percent and again we're talking about pre-tax iras so really anything that goes in a 401k or anything that goes in a pension that will eventually be rolled over as a lump sum to an ira that's how you get a big ira so oil and gas companies put a lot more money into their employees retirement accounts than the vast majority of of corporations outside of oil and gas so you're just you're hyper exposed right so let's i think it'll drive the point home i i, I we did a little case study so just bear with me while i just kind of talk through okay how might the math work out for someone in the ecosystem of people that we generally work with um so case study so if we got a retiree with three million in ira assets uh, and 1 million in brokerage assets. And kind of like what we said with oil and gas retirees, they skew pre-tax, have a higher percentage of their money pre-tax. They live off of $120,000 a year, 10K a month with no mortgage. So $4 million at a 4% withdrawal rate, essentially, we'll just keep the math simple, produces $160,000 a year in income. So that's essentially covering your living expenses and taxes, which is great, right? That portfolio can sustain you. But... Social Security kicks in at age 70 and might begin to cover somewhere in the ballpark of, let's say, 50% of your income. So now the portfolio only needs to produce 50% of your income. So now you're probably not taking money out of the account as fast as it's growing. So pre-70, let's say you reduce the IRA balance from $3 million to two, but now beginning at two, it begins to creep up again and slowly reaccumulate. And let's say at the death of your second spouse, your spouse inherits your IRA, they keep living. Uh, and then eventually your, your, uh, the surviving spouse dies with a $3 million IRA, right? And, and Justin, I will say that these are really conservative numbers. So the odds are likely a lot more. I just didn't want to scare somebody with an astronomically big number due to compound interest. But so let's talk about that scenario. So sec, so second child dies or the surviving spouse dies and they have a $3 million in an IRA. So the two kids, so if you have two kids, you have 10 years to take it, right? 
So if you have, you know, a $3 million IRA growing at 5% and you need to take it over 10 years, that's approximately $185,000 of income per child per year for the 10 year period, right? So just by having that income, you're filling up the top of the 22% tax bracket today. But here's the bigger issue. You know, if you think about your kids inheriting that IRA, when is the time they're probably inheriting it? If you're like kids, let's say ballpark 30 years younger and you're in your mid nineties, probably, you know, late fifties, early sixties, which is the child's peak earning years. So you're throwing them an additional 150 grand or 180 grand a year in income in your child's peak earning years. So the effective tax rate could even be in the 30% just because regardless of whether or not they want or need the money, which they probably don't because they're in their peak earning years, they have to take it because of the elimination of the stretch IRA. Yeah, that's huge, Jared. So the critical question there is when do people typically inherit their parents' IRA accounts? You just you just highlighted that. And that is the critical question. A lot of people inherit retirement accounts around age 50 to age 60. And you just said this, those are often your highest income earning years in your life. Um, and so you have to start thinking through and you know, I do want to highlight, Jared, you just came up with a really conservative situation. We'll link this in the show notes, but our article on why financial planning is, is different for people in oil and gas, uh, we have a case study in that article too. And that also uses really conservative income numbers and basically says, hey, if your company has a 401k match, a profit sharing component, a pension, it is really, really simple if you just work 40 years to pass $3 million in 401k assets that will eventually be IRA. Uh, and then Jared, to your point, so many of our clients do contract work in retirement. So they might retire at 58 or at 60, but they're not spending their IRA because they have this contract work that pays them enough money to cover all of their expenses. So, you know, and it's, it's also possible to hit retirement with 5 million in an IRA, but let's say you have two and a half or three and you've got 12 years where you're not touching it because you've got contract work and just a 6% growth rate over 12 years will have that doubled. So now three becomes six. And again, you don't want to scare people off with compound interest, crazy numbers, but yeah, that's a real scenario that we see relatively frequently. Yeah. I would argue we shaded conservative, but even in that scenario, We've created, you know, already hit the 20% bracket in income with nothing else going on in your child in their peak earning years, right? And so we see a lot of people that are really scared to, you know, use Roth conversions and things like that. But, you know, you have to think about the inherent, like when these assets are taken out, because the government has made it very clear that they will be taken out. What is the effective tax rate of those dollars? So, you know, a scenario we outlined, very conservative in nature, but even just begins to illustrate how much of a tax time bomb this can be. So Justin, let's spend the rest of our time talking about, okay, what then are we to do, right? Because if we think about optimizing lifetime tax rate, uh, what can people do to kind of, if they see this, if they realize, hey, I'm overweight pre-tax, or this could create a big tax bill for my kids, I know I'm not going to spend it down. I know I'm going to have a big portion or continue to have a big portion of pre-tax assets. What's someone like this to do? Great question. And if it's okay with you, I, I also want to kind of tie in why 2018, 2019 legislation is such a big deal with that case study. 
So Jared, you mentioned this. If a child who inherits at age 55 inherits that IRA, they're going to have to take 180000 a year in taxable income. And again, let's pretend that their own job pays them an income that fills up the lower tax brackets. So now they are paying hundreds of thousands a year um, in potential taxes if they're at the higher brackets. But now you go back to 2015 before this tax change took place. Well, Jared, those kids could have taken out at age 55 when they inherit the IRA. Instead of taking out 180000 they maybe would have only had to take out 10, 15000 a year. Maybe a little bit more, but way less, a fraction of what they now have to take out. Plus, I also want to make another distinction. There's now complexity there. So do the children know the 10-year rule? Do they know that, hey, if, if they don't take action, they will still have to take it all out within 10 years? So what if they let six years go by? Now they have four years and the account's grown. It's now three and a half million and they have four years to take that out, all taxable income. So in 2010, 2015, 2017, this was not an issue. But that legislation goes into effect 2019 and now it's a huge, huge issue. And then the secondary thing we're talking about IRAs, if they're tax time bombs, you know, Jared, we haven't even talked about while you're living, they're also tax time bombs. In your mid 70s, you're going to have to take required distributions, all taxable uh, at starting at age 63. Um, your income determines your Medicare premium. So if you're not careful managing this tax time bomb, you're going to get to your 70s and your Medicare premiums are going to be huge because you have income that you have to take. The IRS is forcing you to take distributions, all taxable. And now that's not just signing you up for a big income tax bill. It's also signing you up for really heavy Medicare premiums. And heavy RMDs later in life, right? Because the size of your required minimum distribution is a function of life expectancy. So when you begin taking it, let's say, you know, at 72, you're taking four, four to five percent of the account. Uh, by the time you're in your 90s, you're taking an excess of 10, 12% of the account balance. And using the numbers that we talked about, if you're, you know, the surviving spouse and you have a one person income and you're taking 10% of a $300,000 or a $3 million IRA, that's 300 grand in income and you're a single taxpayer. So 300 grand in taxable income that launches you into the 35% tax bracket. So this isn't just a consequence for your beneficiaries. It could be a huge consequence for you. And I mean, this is like, it just alludes to the importance of having a plan, right? Because if, if your kids inherit the IRA and they have 10 years to take it and they're a radiologist making 400 grand a year, it could make sense to not take it the first six years if they plan on retiring and then living off that for the remaining five, right? So like, there's so much nuance and opportunity from a planning perspective here. But Justin, that's kind of just like making sure the batons pass and that the beneficiaries are educated. What things can you know people do today that are looking down the barrel of retirement or have just retired or kind of deep into retirement to think about to, to kind of manage this? I think we want to talk about a few things. Roth conversions obviously are at the top of the list and you need to be careful there. Uh, Jared, how many times have we seen Roth conversions, people get so excited about getting money in a in a account that's tax-free and gross tax-free, so they do way too much in Roth conversions, um, which is also bad for lowering your lifetime tax rate. Roth conversions, uh, qualified charitable distributions. If you give to charity, that should be a huge part of your plan. Asset location. So how are your different accounts managed? Where do you locate parts of your portfolio? Um, what else would you say? Yeah, so also adding kids as partial beneficiaries on IRAs. 
what this does is it creates two stretch windows. So if you know if one spouse gets 100% of your assets and then the kids get it, then they get one 10-year window. But if uh, if your kids are a partial beneficiary on the first spouse's IRA, uh, they get a 10-year window with that spouse, and then when the second spouse dies, they get another 10-year window. So we've created additional additional uh, decade for them to withdraw a portion of it. You know, you wouldn't list them. You know, and how much, you, how, what percentage you give each child as a partial beneficiary really function of, you know, your financial plan, but adding the kids as partial beneficiaries could be great for creating an additional 10 year window. But Justin, I think Roth conversions matter. Like a Roth conversions are a great place to start. We've talked about it a ton, but kind of like what you were saying, we see people overdo it. And I wouldn't say overdo it in a number wise, they just get in a rush. They forget about lifetime tax rates and like, Hey, you know, Oh, I converted 400 grand this year. It's like, wow, well, your effective tax rate on that was really high. Had we done it over the next five years, we could have cut that effective tax rate in half. So, you know, it's not even the quantity that scares us. It's just the failure to take a step back and think about, hey, lifetime tax rate, how much do I convert? But Roth conversions are really compelling for two reasons. One, you know, you can optimize lifetime tax rate. So, you know, post-employment, pre-RMD, when pre-RMD Social Security, when you have pretty much no income, you can fill up those low to low low income tax brackets. So that's really great. But the other thing is Roth is valuable because of compounding, right? So all the growth that's taking place is in an in a Roth IRA, right? Which is beneficial because the pre-tax that that growth's not happening in a pre-tax IRA, right? So if you know, if over a decade, instead of having uh, three million in an IRA and you have two million in a traditional IRA and a million in a Roth. That's that's much easier to stomach, right? You have a lot more flexibility and future optionality, and a lot less compounding and lower odds that uh, the pre-tax balance turns into a tax time bomb because of uh, the compounding that's going to occur in a Roth IRA. Absolutely, and uh, that's something we think about a lot for two types of clients that we work with. We do see a lot of five million dollar IRAs, and that could be one person had a five million dollar IRA. Or it could also be Jared, a spouse, you know, a, a couple that both worked and both got to about two and a half million. So then those pre-tax assets, they're around four to five to six. And at age 70, we want to start thinking, okay, if you have two kids, let's make the two kids maybe 15% beneficiaries each, uh, maybe 20, 25 each. Um, and we want to plan out what does the surviving spouse, how much do we, do they need to have to make sure that they don't run out of money? So if one spouse passes away earlier than expected, how do we make sure that their surviving spouse is set up for success and does not have a risk of running out of money? But to your point, that is a huge deal, a, a huge deal. If two kids have 20% each, that's 40%. And now $2 million of IRA assets are now funneled to the children. And so that sets up one 10-year window. And then maybe the surviving spouse lives another 15 or 10 years. And then the remaining IRA assets now have a second 10-year window. That one change could lower the average effective tax rate of all of those distributions by 10 or 15%. That's exactly right. And you know, that's that's where it gets exciting is because Roth conversions are something you could do today. Right. But also it doesn't just benefit your kids, right? Like getting back to your, you know, surviving spouse, so single taxpayer, all you need to get to the 35% tax bracket is 231 grand in income, which sounds like a lot of money, but inflation adjusted social security uh, and a 10% RMD could easily get you there. 
right? So this they can, strategy, they can get your way past there, way past it. So this doesn't just benefit, you know, your beneficiaries, but benefits you in future years when your RMDs are disproportionately higher. And I want to say something real quick. It's, it's easy to listen to this. And let's say that you're 64 right now and you're thinking, well, I mean, I'm not going to have a $400,000 RMD. Um, and you might be thinking that, but the difficult part is we're not talking about your tax return this year. Well, we are, we care a lot about your tax return this year, but we're trying to think about tax returns for the next 30, 40 years. And that's why lifetime tax rate is so critical. No, you're probably not going to have a $400,000 RMD this year, but at some point in your lifetime, yeah, you, a lot of you will, um, or the topic of this podcast, your children inheriting the account will. And Jared, I know we've said this before, but gosh, everybody we work with, there's such a wide spectrum on what people want, what they desire with giving their kids an inheritance. So some people really pumped about, you know, giving a, a lot of wealth to their children. Um, other people want to spend their last dollar on their last day of life. Uh, so those are very different outcomes. But the one common conviction, I've never heard anyone who doesn't think this way. They absolutely want either their friends, family, or charities to get money rather than the IRS. That is true regardless of where you are on the spectrum. And so when you think about lifetime tax rate, Roth conversions alone can, can have a 10% marginal tax rate difference in your lifetime. 10% on four, 4 million is $400,000, but that's just Roth conversions. When you think about qualified charitable distributions, you think about asset location, you think about the inheritance aspect of IRAs with, with stretch IRAs no longer being allowed, you can easily hit a 20% delta in lifetime tax rate difference. And 20% on a $5 million IRA is a million dollars of, of difference in taxes paid. So it's easy to say, boy, these are big numbers, compound interest. Is that really going to happen? Yes, it, it really is. Yeah. I mean, especially for like a lot of our clients, right? The podcast Nathan and I just did talking about, you know, a lot of oil and gas retirees having trouble spending money in retirement, right? So they skew a little more conservative. And so, you know, it sounds, sounds unreasonable, but it's totally reasonable. So I'm briefly just going to touch on a couple of the other things you talked about. So asset location means putting just instead of having, you know, let's say your portfolio is 60, 40, we've talked about this idea before, but instead of having each account be a 60, 40, have the allocations and, and the investment products inside of the account be different to optimize for taxes. So essentially what Justin's talking about here is knowing that a dollar of tax-free growth is more valuable than a dollar of pre-tax growth putting the most aggressive assets inside your Roth IRA. So not only, if, let's say you have a 60-40 portfolio, for all, instead of having a 60% 60, 60, uh, 60% stock, 40% bond inside of your Roth IRA, you had your Roth IRA be 100-0. And then maybe you had your IRA be a little more conservative, like an 80-20. Uh, or, uh, or sorry, 50-50. Uh, I don't know how the math works out, but a more conservative allocation there. Your household allocation might be a 60-40, but this Roth that's invested most aggressively will compound at the highest, fastest rate. So, so even increasing you know, the balance of, and that's all we're trying to do is we're trying to increase the balance of pre-tax to after-tax assets. And so uh, allocating assets in a tax-conscious way can also improve that. One thing I would kind of add some color there is think about it in its most simple terms. If you have a brokerage account, a Roth account, and an IRA account, let's say that you're wanting to make 7% a year or 8% a year. 
the easiest way to think about this is, well, the way that you get to that seven or 8% matters. If the Roth does 12%, the brokerage account does 9% and the IRA does 4% and that's how you get to 7% annual return, that's beautiful. That's fantastic. But if the way you get there in so many investment firms, it's, it's frustrating that so many firms just put their clients in a model portfolio. They click a button on a computer and it just implements the portfolio and all the accounts. So you're going to get seven and a half percent in your Roth, in your brokerage and your IRA. That is terrible. That's leaving so much on the table. You want to tilt your tax-free accounts to higher potential growth assets. That's exactly right. And the next thing is qualified charitable distributions. We've talked about this, but once you have a required minimum distribution, you can do what's called a QCD, qualified charitable distribution, uh, which is a gift to charity, and it satisfies your uh, satisfies a portion of your RMD, and it gifts those assets to charity. So that's a great way to get assets out of uh, out of the pre tax bucket while also kind of doing good work if you don't necessarily need the money to uh, live off of, and could be very valuable in terms of helping you kind of manage tax rates. I think, Justin, do you have anything else there in terms of how to combat this? I think that is pretty good. I think that largely covers it. And again, it's it's not something you don't do one of these. You don't do one of these in one year. It's really a matter of getting super detailed with your cash flow over a 25 plus year period. Um, so this needs to be planned out on a really granular level because, man, when you start to add all of these things together, the cumulative lifetime tax savings, Jared, I, I don't want to exaggerate and I don't want to, you know, come across as doing that, but it really, for a lot of people is seven figures. So you can, you can absolutely hit a million, two million plus in lifetime tax savings when you carefully do all of these things together. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's a big takeaway. The, the IRA is a tax time bomb that will detonate if you don't do anything about it. Like you have the tools in your tool belt to remedy and rectify the situation and manage it today. Like the earlier, the earlier, the better, right? This is the kind of thing that, it, you know, it could be a non-issue if you start tackling it today. Um, so hopefully some of the strategies help and kind of help you get you in a frame of mind for thinking about that. I want to add on to that. Not only is it something you need to think about today, the, the door shuts at some point. So if you get to age 70, 73, 74, the window's closed. Um, there might be some things you can do, but yeah, it, it is an urgent thing that needs to be done as soon as possible. Yep. All right, Justin, we're going to switch gears. Uh, if you're listening, if you're still listening at this point, we appreciate you. Uh, we're introducing a new segment called highlights, something you read, something you heard, something somebody did that inspired you, made you optimistic about the human spirit, right? There's so much bad news, especially in financial media about all the things you need to be afraid of. But we've said to be an investor in the stock market, you need to be an optimist. Uh, you need to believe that humans are going to continue to innovate ingenuity. So Justin, what do you got for us in terms of a highlight? Something that something someone or, you know, anything that inspired you and, and your belief in the human spirit last, last couple of weeks. All right. Yeah, that's got to be if you're if you're listening to this, maybe you've seen the Netflix documentary. Is it called Full Swing? The golf documentary on Netflix that covers the ten different PGA players or so. So 
a lot of people came away just loving Tony Finau. And uh, I went to my very first PGA event um, this last weekend, and I was able to take all of my kids. And Tony Finau was, you know, he was kind of struggling. He was not on top of his game. But uh, after he putted out on holes two and three, his caddy gave my oldest two the ball that he put it out with. And so they came away with Tony Finau's golf ball. Each of them did, um, which was just such a memorable, amazing experience. And it's fun to do that, especially my seven-year-old daughter. She is so much more interested in golf now. Um, so it's just a little gesture that's just, you know, he's probably not having his greatest day. He's he's not, you know, having his best outing, but so appreciative that him and his caddy take the time uh, to just make a, a special gesture for fans that are that are there. And that just made their, I mean, it made their month. They, they loved it. Uh, so that was really neat. Um, Jared, what do you have? I've got to say Kevin Corrigan. Uh, it's memori- We just had Memorial Day weekend. He is the head coach for Notre Dame lacrosse. And if you know anything about Kevin, I played lacrosse in college I, or uh, high school. I still follow it. Like really great underrated sport. But he's been the head coach at uh, Notre Dame since the late 80s. So he's really, he's been doing it almost as long as the 401ks existed. Um, and, and Notre Dame had not won a national title. Uh, and they've been to the finals a lot. Uh, and it's just been a long, arduous thing. But it was just a, like just so awesome. It was such a great game to watch them win, uh, beat the number one team, Duke, which is just one of the blue bloods of lacrosse. Uh, so awesome to watch them finally win and to see kind of something that's been culminating for over 40 years to kind of ha- finally happen. You just hear about sports contracts, people just parting ways and giving up. And I, I don't know. It's just, it was just a, a, just a great reminder to endure. And he's had a lot of success, one of the most winningest coaches in college lacrosse, but he had never won a championship. So just to continue to, to fight, to push, you know, to reconfigure with new groups of guys and to believe in himself. I don't know. It was just cool to see, see that happen and got me fired up. Yeah. That is so, so cool. Cool. Well, that's all we got this time. Uh, love to hear from you listeners. Uh, ideas for future episodes. Uh, any questions about how this might apply to your situation? Love to hear from you all. Podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.